Good morning. I'm Christina Leaving, and I'll be reading this morning's passage. The passage comes from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 23, and it can be found on page 1039 in the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Faith Church. My name is Godwin. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Church, and my privilege to open up Ephesians chapter 6. This is actually the last sermon in our series in Ephesians. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've certainly enjoyed it. And uh, you'll see the graphic on the screen, and there's a little subtitle there, and it says, God's big plan for Christ's new people. I trust that's what the Lord has impressed on your heart as we've walked through this uh, incredible letter. And here we are, the final sermon, final passage in Ephesians. And you see this theme, you see this, uh, this, this some kind of subtitle theme in the two halves of Ephesians. And we've talked about this quite a bit. So the first half, chapters one through three, what do we see? We saw the creation of a new humanity in Christ. And we saw Paul reflecting upon our salvation and, and how we're not only saved individually, but we're saved into a church. And we saw in the latter part of Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, we saw the conduct of that new humanity in Christ or the character of that new humanity in Christ. And we're, of course, in that section right now. And we see Paul here wrapping up his letter. Notice with that little word in, in verse 10, finally, it tells us something. These are his last instructions. And in this final section, Paul is really summarizing everything he has been teaching in the past. In fact, if you open up your bulletin, you'll see uh, at the bottom of the note sheet, you'll see a little chart. And you'll see on the left side of that chart, kind of a summary of the uh, armor of God, uh, some of the key phrases in our passage. On the right side of that chart, you'll see where Paul has already taught about this armor earlier in Ephesians. So you can look at that and play with that a little bit later. But what I want you to see is that this is not an isolated chapter in the Bible. Paul is recasting, he's kind of re-presenting his prior teaching, but he's doing it in a new context. What is that context? 
It's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Is that something that you have thought much about as a Christian? Spiritual warfare. Friends, there are three negative forces that work against you as a Christian, against faith church as a church, the world, your flesh, and the devil. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the devil and his minions are real. His aim is to destroy your faith when trials come, to divide the church when disagreements arise, to put doubts in your marriage, to push you into temptation uh, situations, to deceive you into thinking that you're more important than you really are, to twist someone else's words to seem more hurtful than intended, to introduce mistrust and sufficient suspicion and even hatred into your church relationships. Friends, there's an actual being who is attempting to do these things and more. So while your sin and mine, very real and a devastating contributor to the mess, and while the world's evils and the lies of the world are real and a very influential contributor to the mess, so is Satan himself. And I would say that one of the most devastating realities in the American church today is that we simply forget that Satan is real that we are at war, which creates a kind of urgency and desperation that is often missing in 21st century American spirituality. This passage, of course, helps us with this, right? Here's Paul's main point in a sentence. You'll see it on your screen. Let me encourage you to jot this down. Dear Christian, never forget that the church is at war and therefore arm up with the gospel, and stand firm together. I'll say it again. Dear Christian, never forget that the church is at war, and therefore, arm up with the gospel and stand firm together. I want to give you from this passage three calls for the wartime Christian. Three calls for the wartime Christian. Here's the first, a call to be strong. Put your eyes on verses 10 through 13. So let me read verse 10 again for you. Finally, Paul says, be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. I don't know about you, but I would imagine most of us here at Faith Church, we don't feel like fighters. We're just trying to get through the day. We're trying to survive. In fact, you may have walked into this building feeling particularly weak or depleted. The reality is you and I, we don't have what it takes in order to get through the trials and the tasks of today, let alone this week. But I want you to notice, friends, from this passage right away in verse 10, the strength is not in you, the strength is not in me, the strength is in the Lord. And even if you feel strong today, let me gently remind you, the strength required for the vicious spiritual battle ahead this week is not in you, it's only in the Lord. His strength is vast. Your strength is feeble. If you feel depleted, perhaps you ought to evaluate the well from which you're drawing from. Is it the Lord? Or is it something else? Is it someone else? Notice again here, His strength is vast. Now, the same words are used back in chapter 1, verse 19, when Paul talks about, you remember this? Paul talks about the incomparably great power that God has for us uh, who believe. It's the same power, Paul says in chapter 1, by which he raised Jesus from the dead. Listen, friends, that power is at your disposal each and every day. We celebrated this last week, right? 
Resurrection power is available to Christians every day. Friends, sometimes the bravest thing you can do is to rely on someone stronger than yourself. And in this case, in every case, that someone, of course, is the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, will you go to his well to draw strength from for this day and this week? Now, what does this look like to do that? Well, let's kind of follow Paul's logic. So, he starts by saying, be strong in the Lord. And notice in verse 11 and following, he talks about putting on God's full armor. So, how are we to be strong? How are we to appropriate the Lord's strength? We're to put on God's full armor. Now, I'm going to unpack this fully in the next point, but I want to kind of lay some groundwork down first, the foundation first. It's a good practice whenever you see Paul or another New Testament writer using a picture to ask the question, have we seen this picture before in the Bible? Christians often think the place to talk about the armor of God and spiritual warfare is here in Ephesians, and that's true to some extent, but you actually have to go back into the book of Isaiah. The image of God's armor is actually taken from Isaiah. You can jot this down, Isaiah 11, 52, and 59. You're going to see descriptions of the armor of God there. And in Isaiah, there, the Lord and his Messiah are arrayed for battle. Isn't that interesting? God and his Messiah use this armor to overcome their enemies and save his people. Do you hear that? Do you hear what Paul's trying to say then here in Ephesians chapter 6? Christians are exhorted here to take up the same armor that Christ has used to save us. We are not scrambling around for new resources. We don't need to test the quality and effectiveness of these weapons. Jesus has already used them and they work. Therefore, his weapons are enough. They will get the job done for our war. This should give us great confidence, right? As we're going into battle. Paul says, be strong by using Christ's armor. And then he talks about being uh, standing against the schemes of the devil. Uh, does that kind of surprise you, I wonder? You know, I, I think he's deliberately doing this. He's trying to set up a contrast based on what he's already talked about in chapters 4 and 5. Do you remember uh, up to this point in the letter, Paul's been talking about walking. Remember this? Five times, chapters 4 and 5. He says, walk worthy of your calling. Don't walk like the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk as children of the light. Look carefully how you walk. You remember this? So we concluded from our study in chapters 4 and 5 that the Christian life is a lot like a walk, a journey to the promised land. So John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is a very biblical picture of the Christian life. But now look at chapter 6. He says, put on the armor so you can stand. Having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore. Stand is how Christians fight. Walk is how Christians live. What are you supposed to do in the great spiritual battle that we're a part of here at Faith Church? Dress up in God's armor and then take your stand. Don't give up any ground. You know, a lot of folks have read some confusing things about spiritual warfare, casting out demons, exercising sins of ancestors, marching around a physical territory to claim it. But notice what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare. It's very simply, put on the armor of God, the armor of Jesus, and take your stand. That's it, right? We are called to stand rather than advance or invade. We're not embarking upon a new campaign against Satan. We're standing still in Christ's victory. It's crucial to recognize that in the clearest, the most prominent section on spiritual warfare, Paul does not tell us to go hunting demons, right? 
I want you to hear me here. I, I think exorcisms can happen today, much like they did in the first century in the Gospels. We see records of this. But isn't it striking that Paul never instructs any of his churches to develop an exorcism ministry, to bind territorial demons or the such? Apparently, it's not part of the normal Christian life. Paul's talking about the cosmically significant, but everyday and ordinary events that take place in the life of the Christian. So we're talking about spiritual warfare in the home, spiritual warfare in your marriage, spiritual warfare in church relationships, spiritual warfare as you're trying to fight for holiness, spiritual warfare as we're going on mission. That's what Paul is talking about. Now look at verses 11 through 13. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand, there it is, stand against the schemes of the devil, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavenlies. Now, I want to just kind of give you two quick realities that will summarize what we see here. First of all, our battle, our war isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against two. It's against Satan, right? Satan is a real enemy of God and his people. He's not make-believe like Sauron and Voldemort. You're on team Jesus. If you've identified yourself with Christ and his people in baptism, if you've continued to identify yourself with Christ and his people through communion, you are making yourself a target for Satan. It's the first reality we see here. Satan is a real enemy for us. The second reality we see here is that Satan is sneaky in his attacks on the church. You see that in verse 11, so that you can stand against the schemes. It's a great word, schemes of the devil. In John chapter 8, Satan is called the father of lies. And so he doesn't directly assault us. He prefers deceit and misdirection and trickery. He's a schemer. Think about the Garden of Eden. You've got this slithering snake, and he's coming in. And what does he say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Satan is good at sowing seeds of doubt in our minds and hearts. This is for real folks. I mean, there are real malevolent spiritual persons, powers and authorities that are actively trying to deceive you. And where does this battle take place? It takes place in the mind, in the realm of ideas. Brothers and sisters, ideas aren't neutral. Satan's trying to keep people under the tyranny of lies to order your life around ideas that are perhaps just two degrees or 25 degrees off the mark. But you know this, I know this, even two degrees puts us at risk of settling for untruth and not living in the freedom of God's truth, right? May we be vigilant against our enemy's attacks to try to sway us in directions we ought not go. In these opening verses, what's Paul up to? Well, you'll see it. You see it right in front of you there. He's trying to grab his readers by the collar. He's trying to wake them up to this spiritual war. And we have to understand that his readers grew up in this very superstitious, occult-practicing, uh, uh, magic-loving culture. This was the city of Ephesus. Everyone was afraid of evil powers and families and individuals were praying to local gods for protection and so forth. So Paul wants these Ephesian Christians, these, these newly converted Christians, to not only feel the gravity of this spiritual war, but then also to encourage them that, hey, you've got resources in Christ. Friends, too much is at stake here. 
not only for the first century church, but for the 21st century church. Too many of us think that we're living in peacetime rather than wartime. Too many of us approach the Christian life as if we're at scene 75 or Dave and Buster's instead of a bloody and dangerous war zone. Too many of us view the church like a five-star resort with our buddies rather than a boot camp that prepares us for spiritual battle. Have we underestimated the situation? Have we underestimated the very real influence and impact that our enemy can have, not only on us as individuals, couples, families, but as a church? We desperately need a wartime mentality. Do you have it? Do I have it? Some of you were alive during World War II. Uh, I kind of wonder what what that was like to be alive in that particular season. I'm, I'm not an expert of World War II history, but I've read a little bit, and apparently... World War II touched virtually every part of American life, especially uh, post-Pearl Harbor. And so car manufacturers were building tanks and clock companies and plumbing industrialists were designing ammo cartridges and silk stockings. Kid you not, silk stockings were repurposed for parachutes. So every American's doing what they can to contribute to the wartime effort. There was a sort of urgency, a sort of singular focus and zeal around the mission. Well, friends... What if we Christians shared this wartime focus and zeal? The singular commitment to the mission of God in the face of this battle. I pray that we do. I pray that we do. The second call that we see in this passage is a call to take up. So first a call to be strong in the Lord, and then a call to take up the armaments of Jesus. Here we are, verses 14 through 17, right? The famous armor of God passage. And you'll notice six pieces of the armor. We fight with truth and righteousness and the gospel and faith and salvation and the word of God. Perhaps you've noticed that there are five defensive instruments. Most of the instruments are more defensive in nature. And there's that one offensive piece, which is the sword, the word of God. But I want you to notice that all of these, and you're going to see this later as we kind of explain a little bit, but all of these armaments are trying to do two things trying to help you remind you the truth about God and the truth about ourselves as Christians. Friends, if the devil's schemes are in the realm of deception and wrong ideas, God's defenses for us are in the realm of true ideas and gospel promises. And so you can think about each of these pieces as gospel pieces. This is gospel armor. Wearing this armor means believing the gospel more and more and more. It's the intentional application of the gospel to our hearts, the, the massaging of gospel truth into every situation and relationship. You've heard it say that God doesn't help those who help themselves, um, or God helps those who help themselves. That is not true. He helps those who confess their sin, admit their need, and then recall his merciful provisions in Christ. That is what it means to arm yourself with this armor. So, when the devil whispers to you this week, because he will, Did God really say? You've got an answer. When you're in the battle at home this week, maybe in your heart with your kids, maybe you're thinking about your coworkers, you're getting angry, you're able to defend against the devil's lies because you got the shield of faith. You're blocking those arrows as they come and and you're, you're pushing them away with the promises of God. When the devil says, if God is a God of love, how could he judge anyone? You've got nothing to fear if you sin. 
but you've got that belt of truth on and you hear God saying to you, do not be deceived. I will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. I care about your holiness. You take up the breastplate of righteousness so that when the devil accuses you of falling short, the glory of God, you stand ready, clad with that breastplate, knowing that God made him, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We strap on the sandals of peace, resisting our fears in evangelism, right? Knowing that Isaiah promised how beautiful are the feet to bring good news. Knowing that Jesus was the greatest evangelist who preached peace to those who are far and those who are near. And so we wear our own sandals. We don't evangelize in our own strength. We wear his sandals, his sandals of peace, as we boldly proclaim the peace of Christ secured on the cross. This is how we should ready ourselves with the armor of God. So, so to put on the armor of God is to resist the lies of Satan with certain particular gospel convictions. What are those convictions? They revolve around the life, death, resurrection, reign, and return of Jesus. So what does this look like practically? Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. You must feed your soul with more of Jesus through the Bible. You've got to know your Bibles. Like deep down in your bones, know your Bibles. And specifically how Jesus relates to every part of the Scriptures. Every part of the Scriptures. He kind of unlocks every part of the Scriptures. And, and when you have that taste of Jesus from every part of the Scriptures, you're going to learn slowly how to press those truths into the stuff of life. And when do we most need the armor of God? Well, it's when we're suffering, right? It's when we're discouraged. It's when we're in conflict. We need to strap on this armor. In 2015, 147 Christians, mostly students, were killed by Islamic extremists in the Garissa province of Kenya. And I want you to listen to this faithful and courageous leader. He had just lost 150 of his students. And, and he, here's this church leader. His name is Eliad Wabukala. He responded publicly with these words. We will never surrender our faith in Christ to those who glory in death and destruction. We will not be intimidated because we know and trust in the power of the cross. I want you to put yourself in his shoes. He's just lost 147 members of his church because they stood up for Jesus. They were persecuted and they were slaughtered. And he straps on that armor and he says, let's go. We're going to stand still in Christ's victory. Friends, this is exactly what it means to put on the armor of God. You got to imagine that, that this confidence in the gospel that this brother had, uh, it didn't mean zero pain and suffering, right? The church in that province grieved for, for months, perhaps for years over this atrocity. Friends, spiritual victory is not being freed from suffering, but maintaining faith in the gospel despite of it, right? And the way we do that is to strap on the armor, trust the gospel more and more and more. Friends, do you know why Satan is attacking the church? There's probably a dozen reasons that we can give. Let me give you one reason from Ephesians chapter 3. Do you remember us talking about this? God has chosen the church in particular 
to display his manifold wisdom and glory to the universe. Do you remember this? It's interesting, right? God has chosen this, this imperfect church, yet this church is the bride of Christ, and, and he's poured out his grace upon this church. He's chosen the church to display, to demonstrate the manifold wisdom and glory of God to the universe. We are the picture he hangs on the, the refrigerator of the universe at which the whole cosmos cries out, oh my goodness, look at who God is. Look at what God has done for these people. Well, guess what Satan wants to do? He wants to distort that picture. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to crumple a little corner of that picture that God, by His Spirit and through His Word, is creating. This demonstration of His glory and majesty to the universe. So, when we wear this armor of faith in the gospel, Satan's attempts will fail. To be victorious, all we have to do is keep trusting the gospel. So friends, be strong, stand together, take up the armaments of the gospel. And then finally, we see in verses 18 through 20, a call to pray, a call to pray. Does it surprise you to see prayer in the armor of God? Like prayer feels kind of flimsy, maybe too passive. I mean, we're Americans, we get stuff done, right? Something, I mean, prayer is something good to do, but is it really effective when there's conflict in your marriage or tension in a relationship or hardship in the church? Is it really important for the spiritual war? Does it advance God's cause? How does it do that? Does it actually accomplish anything? Well, Paul's answer in this passage and other passages is absolutely, right? Heck yeah. Prayer is given notice more attention than any other piece of the armor. Why is that? Because I think prayer is what puts the armor of God into motion, into action. Notice the emphasis Paul gives uh, prayer in this section. It's expressed with the four alls in verse 18. Pray at all times with all kinds or every kind of prayer, with all perseverance for all the saints. And so prayer is what kind of deploys the armor of God in our spiritual struggle. If we pray, we will be safe. If we fail to pray, we will be troubled. We'll be troubled with doubts and divisions, fears, and overwhelmed with our failures. We don't need a complicated battle strategy. We simply need a prayer commitment. You know, some of the hardest seasons in my life were made harder by my lack of communing with God and then made easier when I redoubled my efforts to connect with Jesus because it was in those times of, of lament and pouring out my heart to God and repenting of my sins and claiming the, the precious promises of God that are mine in Christ, that's when the armor of God was strapped, by, strapped back on me. And so I just wonder, brothers and sisters, are you in a season, are you in a season of discouragement? Are you in a season of depletion? Are you in a season of struggle? Do you sense the enemy scheming against you, plotting against you, seeking to devour you, looking to sow seeds of doubt and division within you? Let me encourage you this morning, based on God's word, be strong in the Lord. Strap on Christ's armor that he's already used to save you. And put that armor into use through prayer. Now, notice that little phrase, praying in the Spirit. Uh, this is verse 
18, pray at all times in the spirit. You may wonder, like, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean becoming engulfed by ecstatic feelings, but rather being empowered to pray in the truth, in the spirit's truth or with the spirit's truth. I love the practical advice that Paul gives here. Pray at all times, pray different kinds of prayers, pray for all the saints. That's a good one. We may feel powerless to help our dear friends here at Faith Church. They're struggling. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. Let me encourage you, you can pray. You may think of some of our missionaries overseas. Pastor Drew just mentioned one of our missionaries, and he's connected to this, this sister. I'll talk about her a little bit more later, but what can we do for this sister? What can we do for these missionaries in this church that's reaching out and trying to support this sister? We can pray. Is there someone right now in your life here at Faith Church, maybe in your community group, in your circle of influence here at Faith Church that you can pray for? Let me encourage you, let me exhort you to go to war for them. Pray God's promises over them. Send them a text, send them an email with a particular gospel promise that relates to their situation. Help them, encourage them to put on the armor of God. I want you to remember this letter is not written to just one Christian in Ephesus, right? Sometimes we receive it like that. This, this is a corporate letter uh, written to a whole church, and so we must apply this letter corporately. And so there's a sense in which you and I strap on the armor of God individually. There's a sense in which we do this together as a church. And so we can help each other with this, right? Notice in verses 19 and 20, Paul shows that we especially need to pray for each other to be courageous in our evangelism. Paul was an apostle. He was a church planner. He was also in chains. Notice it says that, I think, in verse 20. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. And so he's asking for prayer because uh, he's preached this gospel, and this gospel has brought about persecution for him. And so his preaching is the reason he's in prison as he's writing this letter. But we can also kind of broaden out this application. We are all called to proclaim Christ, aren't we? And we all struggle to open our mouths in the face of fear and persecution and opposition. And so we need somebody to pray these prayers for us too, right? Do you remember what Jesus said to his followers? He said, if they persecute me, they will surely persecute you. We must be vigilant in prayer, brothers and sisters. You know, we have Christian brothers and sisters watching their loved ones right now crucified and buried alive by ISIL in Iraq. We have Christian brothers and sisters right now who are being used for testing uh, of biological weapons in northern Korea. Drew mentioned again the this, this story of a Saudi Arabian sister, a new convert. She goes back to her home country to visit her parents. Her parents flip out and put her under house arrest. They're trying to force her to marry an Islamic man. And she's, she's trying to stay true to Christ. She's trying to preach the gospel. And one of our missionaries is involved. You know, there's brothers and sisters here at Faith Church too, and, and many of you who have opportunities to preach Christ in your home, to your loved ones, in your offices, to people who will surely mock you. We want to be praying for you. Can we, can we pray for you? Let me invite you to come out to the prayer service tonight where we will be praying for our church, that our witness will be strong, that we will be persevering and joyful in our walk with the Lord. And you can pray for this sister, the Saudi Arabian sister. Her name is shine. Isn't that nice? Her name's shine. So friends, Satan wants to destroy the preachers of the gospel, the teachers of the gospel, the people of the gospel, and our counter weapon, our only counter weapon, our strongest counter weapon is prayer. Prayer 
actually advances the kingdom. It actually accomplishes eternal thing. It's, it's perhaps the greatest instrument of battle we have. John Piper uh, uses this illustration. I think it's helpful. He says, uh, Jesus is the field commander calling the troops and giving out missions instructions. And he hands the troops these personal transmitters coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And so as a church on mission, we have access to God through these, these transmitters, okay? And, and he's going to be as close to us as our transmitters are, giving us advice and sending uh, air cover and strengthening our resolve. That's what prayer is for. Friends, could it be that much of our weakness with prayer has to do with the fact that some of us are simply not on active duty? We've taken a wartime walkie-talkie and tried to turn it into a civilian intercom, calling the servants for another Coke in the den. If we want our prayer life to blossom, we must recognize that we are at war and our mission is a spiritual conquest. There's nothing we can do physically, and yet God wants to use us as he wants to advance his kingdom and grow his church. Prayer then moves from optional to essential, right? It moves from it's a good thing to do to it's the only thing that we can do. So three calls, a call to be strong, a call to take up this armor, a call to pray. And maybe you're asking this question. I asked this question even this past week as I was wrestling with this passage. It might be rattling around in your head. If Jesus has won the victory, why do we still need to fight? Have you ever thought about that before? If he's really won... Why are we battling? Are we actually secure in our salvation, or what does this mean? Well, I think of it a lot like D-Day and V-E Day. V-E Day was the final day. It's May of 45, and that was when uh, the war shut down. But in a very, very real sense, the war in Europe was over June of 44. What happened in June of 44? D-Day, Operation Overlord. 1,000 ships carrying 200,000 soldiers stormed the coast of Normandy. And anyone watching, they knew this was the beginning of the end. The war is going to be over soon. It was just a matter of time, right? But put yourself in the shoes of the soldiers on the ground. This was this, this kind of assessment, hey, the war's over. This kind of assessment was a mere academic assessment for them. They were still dodging bullets. They were still bleeding. They were still seeing their friends die. They were enduring small setbacks here and there. Friends, this is much like redemptive history. God himself has invaded human history. He came to rescue and fight the decisive battle of our war. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has, according to Hebrews 9, obtained eternal redemption for us. So final victory has been secured, right? Full and, fi uh, excuse me, full and final satisfaction for our sins have been paid. The evil powers in the heavenlies have been overwhelmed. And now it's Christ who reigns in the heavenlies and we with him, according to Ephesians 1. All of that is true. And it's an amazing truth to comprehend. And yet, we are still at war. Satan's running around like a lion ready to eat you. He takes people captive. He's powerfully deceptive. He masquerades even as angels of light. Satan is still alive and working. And we, the church, though we are safe in Christ, we feel his assaults, don't we? And as we 
lie there in the foxhole, as we dig into the trenches with our spouses and our community groups and, and brothers and sisters here at Faith Church, we're tempted to lose perspective, aren't we? Friends, we must never lose sight of the fact that, yes, we struggle, but with a certainty of the final victory, right? There will be skirmishes, there will be casualties, but the D-Day of the Christian life is behind us, and we are assured by it that V-E Day is going to happen. There's a day coming when you can put down Christ's battle armor and rest fully in His arms. Won't that be something? No more Satan. No more sin. No more suffering. No more curse. He will come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, right? In every corner of this world, in every relationship, in every heart, in every mind, in every person, his blessing, his victory will flow through the cross, the resurrection of Christ. His blessings will flow. His victory will be manifest. He will make all things new as we sang earlier. And the church militant will finally become the church triumphant. Amen? Let's take a moment to reflect on the passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.